it got to a point where I was working, you know, 12, 15, 17 hour days, Monday through Sunday, resolving problems that these guys could do by themselves. Like, you know, there's a plumbing leak. All right, I mean, call a plumber, you know, whatever. So when I'd get these messages or these calls, I just stopped responding and it worked. You know, I think afterward, these guys and girls understood that they could solve these issues and started kind of working from there. So um, giving them the responsibility and just kind of letting them fly and just supervising instead of doing and solving everything myself. But first of all, you have to start with good people. It is a common saying amongst real estate investors that you make money when you buy, not when you sell. While this catchy phrase has value, it fails to convey how easy it is to lose money through poor property management. Whether you self-manage or hire a professional, it is important to understand how to navigate the common pitfalls and challenges with rental properties without losing your shirt or your mind. That's why you have tuned in to Maximizing Your Property Value, the Apartment Owner's Guide to Operating Rental Properties as a Successful Business. I'm your host, John Stiles, real estate agent and team leader of the VIP Real Estate Group at Bridge Realty. As a current multifamily investor and former property manager myself, I understand the headaches and difficulties of keeping an investment property from becoming a money pit and time sucker. It takes a solid business plan, it takes tested systems, and it takes key team members to actually find success. So let's take a deep dive and maximize your property value. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Maximizing Your Property Value. I'm so glad that you have joined us today, and I'm really excited to introduce today's guest, who is Israel Garavito. Israel, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Not all, John. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Wonderful. So I want to give the audience just a brief background about yourself. So uh, Israel is a founding partner of Legion Real Estate, a real estate investment syndication company in the Twin Cities. Additionally, he is a managing partner of Falstaff Holdings, a real estate investment and property management company with the majority of its portfolio in Mexico. After graduating from the University of Minnesota in 2007, Israel began his real estate career in franchising, where finding good locations is a major, major bottleneck for expansion. In 2008, as national franchise sales manager and later director of operations for Mexico, he oversaw the search, lease negotiation, build out, opening, and subsequent operation of 42 stores over a four-year period. He and two partners also owned and managed six of those stores. Israel was later hired as CEO by a well-backed Mexican franchise to design its franchise legal, operational, and administrative frameworks in the United States. In mid-2014, after the company was up and running with six stores in the U.S., the opportunity arose to take over the family business, so he moved back to Mexico as its managing director. Since then, with smart acquisitions, some sales, and many operational and administrative changes, the business's income has tripled and the value of its portfolio almost doubled. Most recently, Falstaff Holdings purchased a blighted 16-unit apartment building in the heart of Mexico City and remodeled, remodeled it into a modern business-oriented 24-suite hotel. The company has a mix of residential, single 
and multifamily, Airbnb, boutique, vacation, and industrial properties in Mexico and Minnesota. So Israel, that's an impressive uh, background, but I'm sure that doesn't tell the whole story. So uh, could you take a moment to kind of introduce yourself to the audience and fill in maybe some gaps in, in just how you got to where you're at today? Yeah, sure. And thanks for that intro. That, that sounded really good. Um, you know, I should tell my wife that, see if she, see, see, see if that, how that sounds. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I graduated from the, from the U of M. My family's originally from Mexico. Uh, we came in when I was to Minnesota, to Woodbury when I was 11. Went to high school, went to high school, U of M, graduated U of M in the 2008 financial crisis. And, and uh, right before graduating, a friend and I, uh, and I think you're going to see this theme in my story, I think, where, where I, I failed a lot. And, and this, is, this is my first really big hit, is we were going to uh, open up a business and legislation changed. And we weren't able to. We had inventory, we had debt, we had, so we, it was kind of a mess. So I, I, I ended up, uh, you know, broke, broker than broke after college uh, with no job, <laughs> no money, creditors, right, hounding me. And so I went, I went knocking doors. I had a friend that uh, knocked doors for Apex Alarm, which is now Vivint Security in Solar City. It used to be Apex. And I went to Pittsburgh to knock doors and sell alarms systems. Hmm. Uh, I was, you know, struggled this, this tough job. But uh, after a while, I got pretty good at it. And I was able to pay off my loans. You know, I had a significant amount of money that I owed to creditors. I was able to actually sit down and negotiate. So that was a big, that was a big, you know, one of the big themes here is I, I learned my biggest failures have been my best teachers. Mm. And uh, this is one of them, right? So I learned that uh, through hard work, you can, you can you know, move forward. Uh, you can always sit down and negotiate, right? So I had to figure out how am I going to pay, you know, American Express, like all these, all these creditors that, that we had put together for the business and, and they're haunting you, you know, the right reason, but we, I was able to learn that you can sit down and negotiate. Um, and I was able to pay off my loans. So I, I, I went and I, I knocked doors in Pittsburgh, Virginia, Orlando, Dallas, and then I'm like, I'm done. Uh, I learned how to sell, which was very, and it's proven very, very useful. Uh, you know, it's a hard sale. Um, it's a, it's a tough job, uh, but we made good money. And so I came back to Minnesota. I was going to open up a franchise with, with two friends. I was looking for a job, actually, not even a franchise. And so we went knocking on on franchises doors. That seemed interesting. At that time, it was fitness franchises. And one of those was out opening in Mexico. And they offered me a, the partnership with, with my friends didn't work out. Um, but the franchise offered me a position in Mexico. You know, my family's from Mexico. They were opening up in Mexico. They're having trouble with their master franchisee. They have just one store open, one they should have had, I don't know, like 10 and sold maybe, you know, 15 territories. So I went down there to sell franchises and um, yeah, after a series of events, um, I, I ended up actually operating the franchise in Mexico. Um, I had way more responsibilities than franchise sales. 
know, looking for locations, you know, selling a franchise has all these things that, that, that are in addition to just selling a franchise, training, lease negotiation, importing all the equipment, um, ongoing maintenance, you know, for the equipment, for, for uh, service for the franchisees. And at the end of the day, uh, the franchise sold the master franchise and um, I got hired by the master franchise in Mexico to operate. So we were up operating pretty much 80% uh, you know, of stores in, at that time. So we grew pretty quickly. It was, it was, it was hard work, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, if I, would I do it again? Yeah, I think it was a really good teacher. I was able to, 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 um, to take that sales background and apply it to, to bigger, better products but also understand operations, you know, understand how to build a team, understand uh, the real estate part, I think for me was real important, but I was negotiating with landlords at that time, right? We didn't have, we didn't own any property. So negotiating leases, searching for locations, um, getting a, a good network of brokers, that was kind of my really first time operating part of a real estate company. By the way, before you go yeah. on, um, the stores that you were operating, did you say they were fitness stores or, or what were they exactly? Yeah, they're, they're fitness franchises, so okay. small gyms. Okay. Yeah. And so when when I was hired by the master franchisors in Mexico, uh, we, we had to set up marketing, we had to set up uh, franchise sales, we had to set up the legal part, you know, accounting, operations. Uh, administration, bookkeeping, so this whole thing, and I had a really good team behind me, and we were able to put put a really good team together to to make that happen. Uh, because if if we don't find locations quickly, and we have franchisees, we're we losing. If we don't have franchisees and have locations, we don't expand. If we don't have the equipment, you know, importations, licenses, it's it really interesting. It was a lot of fun. And after that, I wanted to come to the U.S. Yeah, I got I got married. Um, I had my first child, it's a girl at that time, and I always wanted to come back to the US. You know, Mexico for me was a two, three year project, which really quickly turned into nine. Mm. So we wanted to come back. I had a, an opportunity with a Mexican franchise to, to open up in the US. Um, and I went to LA by myself. I was there for almost a year, going back and forth, visiting my wife and, and my daughter. Uh, and that was, that, was, that was when, after about a year, we had six stores open. So we had to, to develop the whole franchise, uh, the legal, you know, the documents, the, because when, when, when you're franchising, you're dealing with the SEC at a, at a deeper level than the syndicator, right? Because it's an offering. So you have to, a lot of lawyers, a lot of fees, it's expensive. We're able to put that together and importing from China, opening up our first few stores. And then the opportunity came to come back and take over the family business. And um, it was it was a tough decision because it meant that my return to the U.S. was, it's my home. You know, my, my coming back home was going to take a few more years, but I was going to take a pay cut a significant pay cut. My career was in franchising. I was at that time already uh, doing a couple couple conferences for URSA. URSA is a big 
a big association worldwide for fitness and I did Mexico. So I was already conferencing for URSA, uh, getting invited to, 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 to speak and, 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 you know, in Mexican, um, entrepreneur association. So it was, it was, it was, it was getting some really good momentum. And so it was a tough decision, but at the end of the day, you know, I decided and with my wife that I'd rather work for, for my kids and uh, my family um, than for somebody else. I took a, a big pay cut, went back to Mexico and, and I didn't just quit. So I, I, I hired my replacement in the US, trained him in, moved back to Mexico. And I got into uh, a company that was a complete disaster. <laughs> it was a complete disaster. And, you know, after it was a complete disaster legally and contracts, leases, uh, we had a ton of, of uh, judgments for and against. And, and uh, that was my first, you know, I'd never been sued before and I've been sued a bunch of times. I've been trying, you know, tenants have tried to put me in jail. Uh, but anyway, so I cleaned, with a lot of work, I cleaned everything up. We were able to pay off creditors, you know, collect some debts, um, get rid of and offload some, some property that just didn't produce at all. And uh, then after about two years, we started being able to grow. And uh, we acquired a few, a few additional properties we uh, got into hotels. Um, the latest one is, is, you know, those suites, right? Mexico City Center was um, the remodeled and that's when we moved to the US. Yeah. Okay. So, that's and then, okay, yeah. That's very interesting with the franchising background and, and the different uh, stores that you had to manage and, and just the volume of all that was going on there. Um, when you took the franchising job in the U.S., was that also with uh, fitness um, stores or what no, type of franchise? That was that? retail. That was retail. It was an electric bicycles okay. and transportation company. Okay. They still have a, a bunch of stores. So, yeah, totally. But but at the end of the day, it's it's a different product. But a franchise and, and a business rely and, and are successful because of their systems and processes, mm-hmm. right? A business's systems and processes. You know, it's it not it's not always the best product that wins. And there are a ton of incredible products that never make it to market or are never successful. You think about McDonald's. Um, do they have the best hamburgers? No, they're they're good, <laughs> but they're not the best hamburgers, right? right? But they have one of the best systems out there, and that's where they are. Where they are, uh, they have the best training system. They have the best uh, distribution systems, it's just systems and processes. And so jumping from one to the other wasn't that big of a deal. It was just, you know, rewired my brain to think in retail instead of, instead of, of health and, and, and fitness and service industry, but uh, it worked out pretty well. Okay. And then when you took the, over the company, uh, the family company back in Mexico, um, who were you taking it over from? Was this, were your parents running it or somebody else in the family? My grandpa, my grandpa actually was running it. And my dad, when I was young, he, he ran it before moving to the US. But it was my grandpa, my grandma, um, a couple of uncles had taken a shot and it just didn't work out. Um, and so, it, yeah, it was, it was, they asked me and I said, yeah. 
Sure. Okay. And then you've been able to um, acquire some properties in the U.S. as well, or did they already have properties in the U.S. before you took over? No. So our biggest acquisition in the U.S. has was actually with Legion Real Estate, and Legion. And I'll get into Legion. Legion, I partnered with with a friend of mine, uh, his name is Mark, and it was really it's been a really good partnership. And our first acquisition was actually here in Rochester. So we just we just bought. 36 units in Rochester in February 2020. We are in the process of renovating them and in the, in the lease up period. And even, even with the current economic conditions, it's turned out to be a very, very good purchase. And I think that that goes back to our initial underwriting. Um, so maybe not as good as we, as, as we hoped, but much better than we thought it would be with the current economic situation. So it's, it's done pretty well. Hmm. Well, great. And we'll have to dive deep into the Rochester yeah. project. Um, before we get there, I just want to mention, you know, what you've mentioned about systems and processes. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting into that because that's really the goal of this show right here is to unpack systems and processes and as they relate to real estate investing. Um, you know, there's a lot of emphasis put on uh, buying real estate, which is obviously mm -hmm. an important step, but yep. um, not as much focus as put on managing the properties. And that's, sure. you know, where things could be made or, or broken. Yeah, totally. Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's after that purchase, you, I mean, you can underwrite perfectly, but if you don't, you can't execute, uh, then, I mean, which is not going to work as well as you want it to, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, why don't we start by talking about the role of a property manager? And, you know, you've been in a management role just as in the franchising side, in franchising business. And then also um, um, for your pro different properties that your family has owned, have you been the main manager or have you been managing managers? So for when my main business, I was a manager. So we were the owners and managers and we managed our portfolio. And we also managed a third party businesses or not businesses, uh, properties, but very few, but it's mostly our portfolio. And that was when I came in, we started managing other people's um, uh, properties, but our main focus was always our portfolio. I didn't have a lot of time in Mexico to to begin to expand that management company. My most of my time was was spent fixing uh, and cleaning up the house. And then when I moved to Minnesota in 2017, 2017, the focus changed. Right. So right now we're, we're we are selling everything and, and buying in the U.S. And we can talk about that later if you want. Get into why we why we are doing that. But uh, my the goal in Mexico was to manage ours, but also to expand our management company and, and encompass other properties. Uh, I didn't get there, but the systems are in place to do that. Yeah. So can you comment on just some of the things to keep in mind either uh, when uh, choosing a manager, what, what does it look like to, to work with a good manager? So a, a good, 
I like to think of, 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 our, of ourselves in Mexico as good managers. And one of the, and, and, and I brought this when we interviewed our, our manager here in the US. I don't, I don't manage our companies in the US or properties. I manage the manager, but in Mexico, I'm the manager. And so what I learned from there, from setting up that company and a lot of mistakes, right? But setting that up and being successful allowed me to, to, to and Mark to choose a good manager for Legion. So one of those things for me that's very important is that there the manager is vertically integrated, right? So we have we don't have a regional manager that oversees everything, and then a regional manager that oversees these properties, and then because you you kind of get into and some big management companies have it like that, but some have it vertically integrated. So we wanted you know maintenance to to be able to to execute. We went out to the property manager to be able to to get out work orders or talk to the to to the to the tenants. We wanted leasing separate, so we wanted all these different uh, systems to be independent from one another, instead of dependent on you know like a small regional manager like a you know I don't want to say like a king, but somebody that could sit and it's like there. I, I in my opinion that. That's the way we used to have it. It, it, um, in my experience, it slowed things. It slowed uh, maintenance requests. It slowed. It was very dependent on that regional manager instead of on the system. If we had a, a really good regional manager, then it worked. Right, it was a quick. If maintenance requests got got. Uh, got scheduled properly and uh, there's good communication with the tenants and good maintenance on the units and and the lease ups were, were and turnovers were fast whenever we didn't have a good manager then uh, it didn't work as well so what we wanted to do and, and coming from my background where in franchising you want we wanted to avoid having a star like a star salesman or a star because then that star leaves and and you have to you know you're caught with unawares and, and Whereas if you have a good system in place, it's not as dependent on that person. It can train most people to work within that system. So that was really important for us. It's having, uh, it's vertically integrating all of our systems. So we have administrative where it's, you know, leasing comes receivable collections, bookkeeping and accounting operations where we have property managers or maintenance guys, you know, those are boots on the ground. In marketing sales, we have brokers, photos, you know, videos, teams, um, all of our channels where we where we sell, and our legal. Legal is really important when when you're in real estate in the manager, right? So, it's, we took out all the regionals and we put them kind of in in columns, if you will. Okay, that worked very well. So, and when you're saying vertically integrate, are you basically meaning you're segmenting the different jobs within management? So that, um, you know, there's different, basically wheels, there's different gears in the machine that are running and um, they're separated so that it's not dependent on any one person. Is that what you? Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you look at it from, from a, um, like an org chart, you know, you'd have, let's say directors or CEO or whatever, and then you'd have a regional and that regional would take care of, let's say 10 properties. Mm -hmm. And that regional would be in charge of 
maintenance, um, uh, you know, uh, lease ups, turnovers, all of these things, that's not vertically integrated, right? So what we did at the top is you have at the top, you have maintenance, and boom, maintenance takes care of all properties. And then you have operations and operations takes care of all properties. And then you have, you know, collections and you have legal and you have all these things that kind of, instead of, of getting stuck in a regional manager and having it be dependent on that regional manager, even our property managers, you know, we'd have our, our, our property managers kind of, kind of stacked up. So uh, those regional managers just took care of the property managers now, not legal, not, not marketing and sales, not, you know, lease up, but it was more communication with, with the tenants, getting work orders to maintenance, so maintenance can execute. And then uh, it worked, it, you know, it's to us, it, it made it very, very, uh, a lot smoother and a lot faster. It was, it was a tough change, but it worked. Yeah. You and know, that, um, that, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I think that's a really great way to approach scaling a business is where you can segment it into kind of departments like that. I know that um, one hesitation for an owner who's going to work with a third party manager that's set up like that is that they might be concerned that there's, you know, the left hand's not talking to the right hand. Like, and if they have a question as an owner, they're not quite sure who, which department they should talk to. Cause it, sure. it might be, somewhat related to maintenance, but it might be somewhat related to accounting, you know, or different things like that. So I guess my question for you is how do you um, create kind of um, communication between departments and so that things are communicated well and yeah. um, everybody's on the same page of what the plan is and then what the goal is for the property? That's, I mean, we could, we could talk an hour about that. Uh, in essence, and just to kind of summarize, every, everyone has, everyone's responsible for their jobs, but at the end, you have the property manager who is the, the you know, the, the last, uh, you know, buck stops here at the property manager level, mm -hmm. uh, which is a guy or girl that's talking to tenants that visits the properties. She or he is the one that puts up maintenance requests, work orders, um, uh, you know, talks to, 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 to legal or to administration about uh, leasings, you know, when, 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 a, when a lease is going to end. Uh, talk to them about maybe you know, sometimes you have problems in your properties, right? Maybe somebody beat somebody else or there's a robbery, you know, that, so it, it goes, it, it, it ends up at your manager, property manager level. And then when the, that person is communicating properly, you just make sure that the other parts of the business execute like they should. Hmm. So you have to have really good property managers and here in the U.S., you know, when when we hire a property manager, uh, I dug into where and who was res the ultimate responsible person for our property. Her name is Jill, and she's amazing. But it took me a while to find her because first I went. It was kind of it was kind of it wasn't it was kind of murky for me. First, I was you know it was the, the the leasing lady or the 
accountant or the owner because we talked to the owner. Like, who do I talk to, right? And I had a really good conversation with with John, the owner, saying, John, you know, who is the final responsible? Well, me, no, I mean, not you. Yeah, I understand you. It's your business, right? I understand that. But for that property, who visits the property? Who talks to the tenants? Who knows who the, ten- the tenant's name? I don't know the tenant's name, but Jill knows the tenant's name. So she said, oh, well, that's Jill. Okay. Now, when I talk to Jill as the asset manager, because I'm not the property manager here in the US anymore, but as the asset manager, I call Jill. I don't call John. I don't call accounting. I don't call anybody else. I call Jill. Hey, Jill. Mm-hmm. You know, we found uh, somebody with a dog the other day in the park. Or, you know, smoking, whatever it was. Hey, Jill, you know, how's this going? Hey, Jill, how are the tenants? Hey, Jill, how, how are collections going? We just actually sent, especially right now with COVID-19. And Jill is the one. So that's, that's really important is, is having a really good property manager that knows your tenants, visits the property, and then he or she can communicate with the other segments of the business to make sure it's, it's run correctly. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. You have to have uh, somebody who's in charge or somebody who takes responsibility for everything that's happening at the property. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very good. Definitely. Can you uh, share either uh, a challenge or a success that you've had with management and um, what's kind of something you've learned through an example? Nobody's ever going to take care of your business like you will. And even the best property manager will not. Yes, a good property manager will take care of your business, but not as well as you, the owner. Um, so even, even when you have a property manager, it's your job or responsibility as an investor for yourself or, and if you have other investors to manage that manager. And it, it doesn't mean micromanage that manager, but you have to keep up to date with with what's going on in your property and if you see anything that's that's out of line if uh, you know what's the rent roll coming at what's collections what are you guys doing in marketing and we tried to when we chose when mark and i chose a property manager here for legion we made sure that we were that the property management company allowed us to speak directly to that property manager and not you know some regional that oversees you know 100 properties or or you know, the VP or whatever, no, like we really wanted to talk to that person that whose res- responsibility was my property. And it's worked out very well. Not every management company will let you do that, but it, it's worked out well for us. Uh, as a manager, one of the most difficult things for us was making sure that we had good tenants and you never know. We, we had getting a really good system in place where we can screen our tenants the best way that we can. And even then, there will come times where uh, you will be disappointed. You know, this, this great couple that, that looks really good on paper and has a really good family could turn out to just trash your property. Or you could turn out, you know, having to litigate or evict or whatever. That's disappointing. Um, that, that's disappointing. But if, if you have good systems in place, you, you minimize that risk. You know, a lot of people say, well, I'm not gonna rent, you know, I hate, I hate renting my properties because then you have to deal with tenants. Well, yeah, you have to deal with tenants, but if you do your job properly, it shouldn't, ha- it shouldn't be a, a, a bad experience. You know, yeah, you can run into bad experience, but you know, we've had a, a bunch of bad tenants, but we've had a lot and many more really good tenants you know, that have been with us for many years, so. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I wonder if we can dive into one of these systems and processes. Obviously, there's more than we can really cover in this short discussion here, but why don't we pick out the leasing, for example, since we were just mentioning that, and what are the good leasing processes to make sure that you get good tenants, you know, to the best of one's ability. There, there might be some that sneak through, but uh, to the best yeah. of our ability, what processes should we have for success there? So I, I will speak more in my experience in, in Mexico than here. Here, my manager is the one that understands it better. Um, but the same principles apply. So you have to have somebody that has good income to cover your rent. You have to have somebody that has good references that you actually call on the phone and speak to them. Two or three good references, right? Personal references, commercial references, maybe you know, a supplier or a partner, somebody. Um, we like to interview them in our office also. Uh, them and, and the wife and, and meet meet them, not me personally, but sometimes the property manager. Um, then in Mexico, we needed to have good collateral. We don't need that here because we need to have good recourse in case the, the, you know it went bad. But this is not something that, look, an eviction in Mexico can take eight months. So it's different than here. Hmm. You said eight uh, but the, yeah, we can take up to eight. Even you know, you can if, if your lease agreement isn't isn't uh, isn't good agreement, you can be up to a year and a half in tribunal or in, 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 yeah, wow. in, in tribunal. Yeah. So, yeah. So you put a lot of emphasis on that, right? Getting good tenants, um, and you do your best. So income, references, credit check and criminal background check. We could do that in Mexico. So all of those things, they're minimize our risk when, when getting a good tenant. And within those, you have levels, right? So you have maybe a three to one income to, to rent ratio. We like to have 3.5 to four to one. Hmm. Um, we like to have somebody that had been in their current job for more than two years. Uh, and some of these are, are a little bit negotiable, but that, that, those are pretty fixed, you know, good, Good recourse if 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 the contract went bad, and good references, and not their uncle and mom and, and you know and brothers, but a couple of commercial references that we need to actually call, and sometimes we would visit because you just make sure that they weren't just giving us ghost numbers or somebody you know their neighbor's number, mm-hmm. uh, and their prior landlords. That was really good. So prior landlords reference and we would call the prior landlords and if we couldn't get a hold of the prior landlords we just would not rent to them mm-hmm. now when you're mentioning uh, commercial references um is this for residential tenants or is this for your commercial tenants this was for so for both commercial for residential we were more lenient okay. but everyone has commercial references right maybe um your bank or uh, you know, maybe somebody that supplies, or you you buy. I mean, I don't know. Uh, we buy like toilet paper from I don't know somebody. Somebody that 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 has this commercial relationship with you. Okay. If but with the residential, we understood that it wasn't as necessary as commercial. For residential, prior landlords were really important. Okay. So. Um... For the leasing process, do you typically have a leasing agent who is in, you know, in charge of showing the property, advertising the property, and, and then screening the tenants? We, so we had administrative, for, for us, 
the administration screen the tenants because of a different process. They would collect all the documents after somebody was interested and they would screen that. And then we, yeah, we had leasing agents or brokers. We had a good network of brokers that we developed that um, had, that knew our, our requirements. These are pretty tough requirements that knew our properties very well and knew that we would pay commissions like we should, right? So then when we, when we, when we started getting some volume from clients that liked the property, we started getting a waiting list. So yeah, we worked through leasing agents, but then our, we, we ourselves in house did the screening for the tenants, you know, credit checks, background checks, um, calls to references. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and what about the marketing of the properties do in, I'm not sure how things might be different in Mexico, but do residential tenants typically work, with brokers or to you know to find a place to live or are they looking on their own on places like craigslist or you know whatever the equivalent would be in in mexico yeah so in mexico we we don't have sweet you know zillow true that we have that but not as robust so most people work with agents um and we have you know century 21 cbre and then a bunch of these local smaller agencies that we developed over the years. Okay. So for us, it was key to develop relationships with these agents, mm-hmm. um, and they they market it. So we would market it in the equivalent of Craigslist in Mexico and in the smaller Zillow and stuff like we'd market it there, and our and we'd receive calls and sometimes we'd we'd rent them, but mostly they came through our agents. Okay. I'm curious, um, is that the same, whether it's a kind of A-class property versus a C-class property, or is there differences between those Uh, in the leasing um, process or marketing process? So in in Mexico, it's pretty much A and B-class properties. C-class properties is a big social divide. C-class properties, you get into the, the, um, it's not, as developed in the kind of more, yeah. So it's A and B class properties. Okay. Yeah, I mean the C class property where, you know, you, you have an apartment here for 850 bucks, maybe 800 bucks. Um, in Mexico, you'd probably rent that for 150. So it's, it's different, right? It's different. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I have a background in intercultural studies. So I. I just am curious okay. about these, these differences, but uh, <laughs> not necessarily the focus of the show here. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about that anytime. So very nice. Um, well, let's move on a little bit here. Um, what have been some other, you know, key essential processes and systems to the success of the rental business? And, and you mentioned, uh, or it was mentioned in your bio, just the growth that the company has seen in recent years as you've taken over. So what, maybe let me pivot the conversation or the question a little bit to say, you know, what systems have you been able to transfer from your experience in franchising over to the rental business? Yeah, that's a really good question, John. With my background in franchising, franchising is, it's all systems and process and really any businesses, right? But we get, trained very well in, in how to separate those business processes how to, and how to train our, our people to do that. So when I started 
to implement, and this is from a, for, from a, an American franchise where in Mexico it's more laissez-faire. You know, the U.S. is a lot more structured. So with that going into family business, which is even more laissez-faire, it was kind of a it was kind of a hitting the wall. Um, I had to develop a lot of patience, but um, understanding how to develop the operating and and the administrative um just the, just the design and how, how is your business going to operate and if it's just one property it's not the big of a deal you can do it all, your, all yourself but you need to understand how to work that and how to organize that so systems and processes one of them was vertically integrating everything maintenance you know working a lot with maintenance um getting uh prioritizing you know we have emergencies where we have to attend on a sunday night at 3 a.m where you know pipe bursts and have to go you have to have the supplier or the, or the subcontractor that's willing or the employee that's willing to do that right because what happens if you get a call on sunday at 3 a.m and you don't have anybody are you going to beat yourself um so working a lot with maintenance getting our sales ready you always have we always wanted to have a waiting list um and it's tough to do but once we started working with our brokers and stopped doing it ourselves and started working getting our operations and our administration ready and and in making sure that our tents were happy at the end of the day we our product is a home and a house and they're paying us to make sure that everything works it works properly and anything in whatever's necessary gets attended in a timely fashion uh, because it's it's them living there it's their children living there it's their grandparents you know whatever it's their home so that was really important to us so for franchising to 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 real estate is is just i i it, it took me a couple months but to just sit back and think about the business and all the systems that are in place, restructuring our personnel, that was tough, right? People are kind of, don't like change, but restructuring our personnel to, to, to work in that new fashion. And then uh, just executing and training and working with, with our guys, right? So. We had to, some people left, some people quit. We had to let go of other people. But um, when we had really good people in place and we take care of our guys, like we really take care of our guys. You know, right now in COVID-19, everyone's firing everyone in Mexico. We, we, we keep paying our guys their home with, with salaries because, I mean, because they've worked for us for many years. So working with our people and getting really good people in place to work that system was absolutely key. And I see that in franchising all the time, where we had a regional that was like one of my core guys. And we had maybe a region that was struggling or a gym that was struggling and I'd put this core regional or manager in that spot and we'd see numbers just spike dramatically. So it, it's, 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 all about who is on your team sure and who's on your team as employees who's on your team as subcontractors who's on your team at everything you know legal marketing like who do you work with mark and i have this thing like we don't work with 
people we don't like, first of all, that we can't get along with. Um, and, and we don't work with anyone but the best. And we, and we try to attract that and we try to work for that and look for that. And that's what we developed here in Legion. So we tried very hard to, to choose uh, people that are some of the best at what they do. And that, that was a big change. So it was something I took from franchise into the business and that worked very, very well. So getting really good people, really good subs, um, and then just designing a system that worked. Yeah. Well, that uh, sounds really good, having the right people in the right seat, as they say. Um, is there anything that you can speak to as far as how do, you, how do you determine who the right person is for that role? And how do you communicate, you know, kind of the expectations so that they can be empowered to fulfill the role that they're in? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, you know, there are a lot of leadership books written about that by, by some of the best guys out there. Um, and I encourage, so I encourage your listeners to read a lot, right? Read about these things, but it's, you can't, you can't drive a, or turn a parked car. So you have to have somebody that wants it, right? You have to have somebody that's excited about it, that wants to work. And uh, if, if, if you are willing to fail with them versus, you know, you fail, you're, you fail, you're fired. <laughs> Say, wait a second, you failed here, but hey, maybe you work better here. Hey, let's try this. And maybe you switch your maintenance manager to whatever, accounting, I don't know, right? I mean, that's a big change, but or maybe you change your, your uh, plumber and make him maintenance manager or you have your leasing a, a, a person and change her to her him to um, maybe uh, you know legal and but as long as they're willing to work and they trust that you're not going that if they fail you're not just going to fire them i found that most of the people are are grateful and are willing to learn and um yeah if they see you out there you know leading your charge they'll they'll come with you so it's it's that for me, I mean, that's for, it's simplified, right? But it's really that simple. I think if, if you people know that you care, I think they, if they're good people, they'll care back, you know, and, and, and work. And, and uh, sometimes you just have to let some people go. Mm. That's a tough situation. It's tough for everyone. But I think it's, it's always good for both, you know, the, the employee and you when, when you have that conversation. It doesn't have to be, you know, you're fired. Um, get your stuff and leave, call the cops. But in my experience, it's, it's generally turned out into a reasonable conversation with another adult saying, hey, I understand you're not comfortable here and it's pretty apparent. Um, what do you suggest? And a lot of times they say, you know what? This is it for me. Thank you very much. But um, yeah, so we've always been willing to work with other people, even you know, switching from roles to roles. If they fail, they don't get fired you know for me getting fired is is very i don't hire people to fire them right so if i'm going to invest money and time into them um 
yeah, I'm not, I'm not just gonna, I'm not just gonna fire them. Like I'm gonna do whatever I need to do for them and give them the, the tools necessary to do the job correctly. So if, if at the beginning, at the beginning, when I, when I started and went franchising to the family businesses, you know, my, the biggest question for me was, am I giving these guys the tools that they need to do their job correctly? Are the expect, expectations clear? Is the line of communication open with me? Uh, is right. And when I couldn't see everything, so it, so my managers were responsible for their for their areas, and my communication was with my managers primarily, and they were the ultimate responsible party for that. And so, and that worked very well for me. And if if they wanted to change roles, we, we would change them. Or if they weren't working, we'd have a conversation, maybe change them. But I made them responsible. We chose good people. We trained them, gave them the tools, and just kind of let them go. There was a time, and and, and I tried this after it was all implemented, where it was impossible. I was getting so many calls, and there was a time where I just stopped answering my manager's calls. See what happens, and then I would call them. <laughs> I couldn't sleep, you know, these first few days, the first couple of weeks, but then I would call them a day or two later and ask them how they resolve this issue because it got to a point where I was working, you know, 12, 15, 17 hour days, Monday through Sunday, resolving problems that these guys could do by themselves. Like, you know, there's a plumbing leak. All right, I mean, call a plumber, you know, whatever. So when I'd get these messages or these calls, I just stopped responding and, and it worked. You know, I think afterward, these guys and girls understood that they could solve these issues and started kind of working from there. So um, giving them the responsibility and just kind of letting them fly and just supervising instead of doing and solving everything myself. But first of all, you have to start with good people. Yeah. Well, I think you've said a lot of good things in there. Uh, one thing I'll mention is a lot of I think a lot of real estate investors are kind of the solo entrepreneur starting out. They like, they're very independent yeah. and like to do things themselves. At least that's uh, how you might describe myself, but sure. a really good, uh, you know, investor who's going to be able to scale their business is going to need to learn how to work with people, right? How to have a team. And so I like what you've said about, you know, picking the people who are going to be uh, excited about their job who are willing to learn and then also enabling them to make decisions to not, yeah. not just have them be a conduit to yourself to make the decision, but give them power so that they can, you know, have some ownership of their role and be able to make progress with or without you. Yeah. And you have to be ready when you do that for them to make mistakes. And those mistakes can be costly to you as the company, as the owner. But at the end of the day, you want to be able to have a business and not a job. Mm -hmm. And for you to have a business that runs itself, you need people that can run it for you. Mm -hmm. And if you never step back, it'll never happen. So yeah, it might be a little bit expensive, might lose some money, some time. But at the end of the day, if these, if, if the guys or girls are, are good they will begin to work and, and, and just figure it out and, and do it mm -hmm. if you design the system properly and then you yep. can just kind of tweak from there 
going off that mindset, can we dive into maintenance for a little bit here? Because I think that's one of the easiest ways to lose money is by either, you know, not hiring the right maintenance personnel or not responding to maintenance promptly or, or in the right way. So how, what systems and processes have you set up within kind of maintenance and capital improvement so that the person that's in charge of that department can really succeed in it? Yeah. So we have, we implemented the, it's really simple, right? So you have seasonal things that you need to do to maintain your property and you need to budget for those. But let's say, you know, you need to um, waterproof once a year in, in Mexico and different climates have different necessities, right? We need to, to waterproof, we need to check plumbing, uh, we need to paint, right? So we need, and, and that's seasonal. So every X amount of months, we have to do this and it's gonna cost us this much. So when I came in there, we had to resolve all these issues. We had a ton of deferred maintenance that we had to take. Those were very expensive. But once it got running, so you, so you have your calendar, you have so seasonal, this month, every single year, the system, right? Going back to system processes, every single year in August, we throw some um, waterproofing on the roofs. For example, every single year, August 1st, we have that, boom, done, okay. Then you have um, requests from your property manager, and then you have requests from your tenants. And, oh, hold on, let me get back, let me go back. So you have your seasonal ones, then you have your capbacks, right? So you have your roof replacements, window replacements, every X amount of years. And so you plan for that. You may not need to do it that same year, but you have budgeted it and you have planned for it. So you put that in the calendar, in your big calendar, and you budget underneath. And then you have your requests from, uh, from your property managers and you have your requests from your tenants. And you divide those, which is, that's more, volatile right and it's it's variable and so you, you divide those into you know what's urgent like you need to take care of it right now a pipe burst and it's flooding there's a fire you know the roof's falling down i don't know whatever there you know there's a tree that fell on top of my car stuff like that doors won't open those are urgent you need to take care of those right now and so the 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 direction for the team is you stop whatever you're doing and you take care of that and then you go back and resume and so then you have those are like the emergencies and you want to have very very few of those because those are expensive but they happen um you want to make sure that if it's that you can solve it and you can charge your tent for it if it's their responsibility um, so you have to have, you know, a way for the manager or the maintenance guy to, to um, identify the problem. And then you have requests that, you know, could take a couple of days, it could take three days, you know, you could push out for about a week, a couple of weeks, you know, my door hinge is loose. Okay, when can we do that? And so you calendar, and then you start getting your weekly in your, in your, in your calendar. So once a week, the maintenance guys sit down, take a look at the, at the calendar, at the last week's request that weren't urgent and then they plan and modify you know week two weeks ahead mostly 
So that that worked to smooth out. So we got a maintenance, we, uh, we train the maintenance manager and his role is if, if, if he's able, it's to help the guys, right? Putting out plaster, uh, you know, cutting uh, marble or putting marble flooring or whatever. But if he doesn't, then he's, he's also the one that, that does the schedule for everything. And so he's the one that talks to me and we, we, we uh, developed the, the larger calendar for, for the seasonal items and then the budget. And, and so we work with him for budget and, and all that stuff. Hmm. Okay. That's the way that we worked. Um, here in the US, we work with our property manager and their subs. So it's a different, yeah. Yeah. Well, I like that approach because, you know, whether you like it or not, properties need to be maintained. And unfortunately, I think some owners and investors just don't plan for that. They just, uh, they're surprised when something gets uh, broken and uh, they're upset about it uh, or they just put it off because it, you know, it's not in the budget. There's, there's no money for it. Um, So then it it might. Right. There's no fund the budget, right? Exactly. And that's a big deal. So you plan for these and you budget for them. Mm -hmm. And when you budget for them, you don't use that money. You know, you put it out somewhere else. And then you have this big pile of cash that you can use, you know, for different things, but you have to budget for it. So when you underwrite, a lot of this happened with, with reserves right now in COVID with a lot of businesses that are, that are going broke is they didn't have enough cash, enough reserves. You know, and it's part of that monthly, hey, instead of taking all that cash flow and, uh, you know, dividing it up into the, the members or whatever, is, hey, yeah, let's take that cash flow, but we're going to, this is our reserve budget. And that reserve is for capital expenditures, for seasonal maintenance, for uh, unforeseen, you know, legal, whatever. And then you keep that in a separate account. That's really, really important. Yep. So when it comes to your maintenance manager, obviously you're going to speak with them frequently when for these unexpected things that come up. But do you have any sort of routine with them as far as maybe a quarterly meeting or an annual meeting in order to plan out those repairs that should be budgeted for? So, yeah, we, so we revise our, so the repairs that are seasonal are pretty standard. So we don't need to revisit those, but what we do is we get so we plan our calendar and then we get a yearly um like status report hey how are the roofs doing hey how many um you know leaks do we have from this property and this roof this year hey do we need to replace you know it's set to be replaced in three years can we make it three years you need to push it to two maybe so yeah that's definitely that's uh at least twice a year definitely once a year but at least twice a year and 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 since there there aren't emergencies, you don't have to sit down, you know, once a month. It's every six months. Once a year would be fine. And we do it every six months because of the different types of properties that we have. They have different, uh, you know, requirements. Um, but yeah, six months once a year. Yeah. Okay. Very good. And along those lines, are there any other? Um, key performance indicators or metrics that you track 
on a regular basis, you know, whether or not it's related to maintenance, but just on a broad scale related to your rental business, what numbers are you looking at on a frequent basis? So as a manager, I like to, I look at cash flow. So every, you know, once a week, I look at rents that are coming in. Um, we look at, you know, our vacancy rates. We look at our rating list, how many applications we have. That's really important. Um, it's really not, I mean, it's not, it's not much more than that. You know, I mean, we, we can get really deep into KPIs and, and different performance indicators and you have, you know, your last lease. And, but as long as, as your rents are, we do this all the time. So we check market rents all the time. As long as your rents are in market rents and your maintenance is, is up to market rent standards and your vacancy is low, right? Five, six, zero percent. We shift for zero percent vacancy. And we've had that for many months. Um, but then, I mean, that's, there's not much, much more to it, really. Yeah. You have to have really good brokers, a good funnel, right? A good sales funnel, a good turnover. That's an important one. So how many, how much time is it taking us to, to get a vacant unit and turn it over? That's really important. Um, you know, one month versus a week. Um, how long is it taking us to rent? That's really important when we have vacancies. So when we had a really a lot of vacancies, how much time we had? We had the time when I came in, we had apartments that hadn't been rented for two months. Hmm. To me, that was that was I mean, that was that was, that was preposterous. So we we get you know, and it's maintenance, getting in there, getting out there, getting quick. So we got our turnover to about a week. Okay. Sometimes we even had pre-leased. So even before the first tenant left, we had the lease signed for the second tenant, we generally have. And so we have a week for the maintenance guys to go in, clean, paint, you know, fix toilets, fix, you know, whatever appliances, and then the tenant comes in and moves in. So when, yeah, once, once you do that, you don't take a look at, many kps but first yeah it's you know your turnover rate how many how much time it's it's taking to rent um your cash is really important vacancy rates uh that's that's but that's those are the main ones that we look at okay very good well i want to transition now to to focus in on uh, your recent acquisition of the rochester property um okay. before we get to that is there any other kind of final thoughts on just systems and processes overall and, and what you've been able to transition from uh, the franchise business over to the rental business. I think if the owners, you know, getting into multifamily, you can't do it by yourself. I mean, you can, <laughs> I wouldn't do it by myself. You know, it's, it's a lot of work. And if you do it properly, you have to, you can build a good team. So getting a good system in place that minimizes turnover, minimizes vacancies, and a lot of that's maintenance, right? Maintenance in your property management. And, um, and getting good people behind it, that's really important. I mean, and I saw this in franchising all the time, is, is a good manager versus a more or less manager versus a bad manager. We put a good manager in a bad manager's store and the numbers just jumped in one month. It was incredible. 
So that really hit home how important these guys are. And so when you get good people, you train them, you take care of them, and you give them the tools to succeed. And that's really what what I would stress is mm-hmm. getting a good system and, and process in place. Doesn't have to be very complicated, but getting good people to execute and just let them letting them go. Yep. That's good stuff. Well, let's go into the Rochester property. Why don't you tell yeah. us first about uh, the acquisition process, how you found it, and uh, what the process was to purchase the property? Yeah, so uh, this property was my first property with my partner, Mark. Uh, we're Legion Real Estate. Um, going back to good people, I think you know, I've been in good partnerships and bad partnerships and I've learned a lot from my bad partnerships and, and, you know, a a good partnership doesn't have to, there are many people with a lot of money out there. And so it's not about just the money. It's other than money, what can that partner bring to the table? And this is really important for Rochester because I didn't have experience in the U S yeah. The principles are very similar but the devil's in the details, right? So you can't, what if I, what if, what if I get sued by not screening my tenants properly? Or what if, uh, uh, so, you know, working with subcontractors, working with, with management companies. So Mark has a lot of experience. Mark has, has a very successful flipping business and he's, he's developed, he has many properties himself. He has really good banking relationships, which is another part of, of the systems in place, right? So you have you know, your marketing, sales, operations, legal, et cetera, et cetera, administration, and you have banking, and that's really important. In Mexico, it's very tough to do. And in the US, a commercial banker, uh, it's tough for them to, to, to even let you in their office, right? So uh, Mark has a lot of experience, has some really good banking relationships they have had for a lot of years. And um, for me, it was very easy. We get along very well. So this has been a really good partnership. Uh, Mark's a broker to a, a, a realtor. And he's also, um, I think he's a treasurer for St. Paul, the St. Paul's Bar. St. Okay. Paul. Area yeah. Association of Realtors. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so Mark brought in some incredible experience for us. You know, and, and he's an incredibly hard worker. So that made sense. We partnered up. Um, he found the property. He, he, he was actually for a meeting in Rochester when he, he drove by and looked at the hey, is this going on? Let's take a look at it. And so we talked to broker. We went to visit it a couple of times. And then um, we put in an offer and we got it under contract in at the end of 2019 and we closed on in february of 2020. okay before we go on i'm wondering were you planning to buy a property in rochester or how did you decide that uh, that location was just opportunistic or yeah how did you come to that so we yeah we've been we actually we started looking outside of the of minneapolis st paul Minneapolis is starting to get a little bit tougher with tenant landlord laws. 
which to me coming from Mexico, they're still pretty reasonable and very, very relaxed. So I was, I was comfortable in that, that environment, tomorrow wasn't. And um, so we decided to look elsewhere where we could, you know, we could find uh, a reasonable price for reasonable rent and a very stable, very stable economy. And so you have, there aren't a lot of options outside of, of, of Minneapolis St. Paul, right? That have, you know, several sources of income, right? Several big companies, instead of, you know, Fairbolt, you have like Genio and if Genio goes down, then I think everything goes down, for example. Um, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable there, but Rochester, you have Mayo Clinic, but Mayo Clinic is not just Mayo Clinic. Mayo Clinic is Mayo Clinic and all of its derivatives. Uh, we, but we first w- w- looked at Red Wing we were about to close on a property in Red Wing, and the, at the end of the day, we it just felt like fitting, you know, a round peg or square peg in a round hole. Uh, we dealt, we were dealing with with the H, local HRA, which was they were amazing, but uh, and they were giving a lot, giving us a lot of money to develop, and and but it just wasn't there. So the rents that we could charge versus the cost of build out didn't just didn't make sense. Plus. You know they have about a three percent, three point five percent property tax rate, which is is huge. Uh, it just didn't make sense. And then we were able to say no, and we were very close, but we just we had to walk away in a hurry because we put you know, a couple months of work into that. And and looking at the property, you know, getting appraisals, getting a guy to to do drawings, working with the HRA, we we were about a week away from, from sitting down with city council and the mayor when we just had to just to walk away. So it was you know, two, almost three months of work. Was that uh, and then, new construction or was, Red Wing. was that new construction or existing? That was half and half. So it was in downtown Red Wing. It was an older building where we had four, four units and we could build another four or five units, new units. And then we could, we were going to build a uh, storage uh, underneath, like storage facility underneath. We, that was one. And then another one was a really nice building in downtown. It was very open. We could build about 12 units at the top. And then it had some commercial on the bottom, like for commercial tenants. Um, but the rents just weren't there. So our underwriting uh, is, is pretty good. It's, it's, it's pretty conservative. And we just didn't feel comfortable that we could command the rents necessary and nobody could tell us that we could. So we spoke to several property managers in the area and nobody was sure. So, you know, we just decided not to risk ourselves. So we went to Rochester, Mark found this in Rochester and it was just kind of, he was driving by and he found it. It popped up, I think for a couple of days in the MLS and we called and um, we, we read our numbers very quickly. Uh, we got an initial estimate, you know, initial underwriting, and we got the contract pretty well, pretty quickly. Okay. Yeah, very good. And then what was the plan starting out with this property in Rochester? I understand there was a bit of renovation to do there. Yeah. So we're going to renovate the 36 units. There are 36 units. We had a pretty aggressive renovation schedule started in March. And these are the things that you, that you kind of run into. So when we got under contract before we signed, part of our due diligence was getting a local subs for local, local general contractors, local everything, local property managers. You know, we, we, and this is part of getting good people on your team. 
really good people. So we, we interviewed five different property managers. We interviewed a bunch of contractors. We called a lot of commercial guys to come quote us on how much it would cost us to. And our mistake uh, was choosing a contractor by, its, by his price, by his quote, instead of really digging in and 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 I'll, I'll own this mistake instead of really digging into references and, and past but we had a really good feeling so our property manager suggested him highly our current property manager suggested him highly um but maybe you know i should have dug up i don't know hindsight's 2020 right but so he ended up bailing on us a week before we closed hmm. so that was interesting um, because we had this renovation schedule set up for the 36 units and we need to do, you know, X every single month to be able to refinance. So our, our, our idea is, is stabilize the property, maximize your NOI, refinance, pull our equity out and just keep the property. So instead of refinancing in August, we had to push it or in, in, in you know, July, August, uh, we had to push it because our, our general contractor bailed out on us. Our property manager came in and started doing that. But then uh, Mark and his company took over that, which was amazing. I mean, that was night and day. So right, going back to good partners, Mark has a lot of experience. His guys are taking care of it right now. So then COVID-19 hit and uh, we had to, we didn't have to, but we had a conversation where instead of we didn't know what was going to happen. This is February, March, April, like in April, beginning of April, where I said, "Hey, Mark, we we had we were we were renovating. I believe it was eight units at that time. We had eight vacancies out of thirty-six. So we're not cash flowing. Um, we don't know if these eight are going to rent. We just don't know uh, because what should have taken us two months took us three because the general contractor is going to rent. So." COVID-19 hit, we just didn't know if these eight or seven or eight were gonna rent. So I said, look, and, and so we couldn't send out any other notices. You know, can you imagine having eight vacancies and then sending out other 10 notices when you have 18 vacancies? Mm-hmm. So we had to regroup. We had to say, you know what? We're not gonna kick anybody out. Let's rent these out first. And then we will continue. Yes, we're not gonna be able to refinance in August, September. Let's forget it, but you know what? I'd rather have I read I'd rather be able to refinance March, April, May, June of next year than and have a stabilized property than to have 18 uh, you know vacancies on my hand. So we were actually able to to rent those eight today. We signed the last lease for those initial eight that we remodeled or uh, renovated. Mm-hmm. How many were vacant when you purchased the property? So we had we had out of the 36 unit, we had those eight vacancies. Okay. Yeah, we grabbed all the vacancies and started remodeling. So it was, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty empty. Yeah. We had some good. vacancies. We had some really depressed rents. You know, it's 895 market rent. We had some guys paying 650. We still have one or two paying around 650. Uh, but now it's part of the plan, right? So. Um, our renovations are up, they're all leased. And now in June, we are starting for with four more instead of you know, kicking out 10 guys. Okay, fine, four, three and three, and then we'll keep like that. Okay. 
I'm curious, did, uh, did you get the opportunity for any of your existing tenants to move over to the renovated units or did you just decide we to did. fresh tenants? No, we did. We did. So we, the question is who's a good tenant and who's a bad tenant, right? Who pays the rent on time, but is also a good tenant. I would rather have a good tenant that uh, pays late, but pays, right? Somebody takes care of your property that isn't a nuisance to their neighbors than a bad tenant. You know, it smokes, it just destroys it, that pays on time. So it's, you know, talking to property managers is who is our good tenants. And I was, you know, speaking of the brokers, the other brokers, um, they gave us a list of who they thought should stay or should go. But then before, you know, before getting ahead of ourselves and just kicking everybody out, our property manager, Jill, her, one of her first and primary responsibilities was figuring out who was a good and a bad tenant. And so getting to know these guys, calling them, you know, visiting them uh, before COVID-19, but, you know, calling them on the phone right now and just knowing who is who so we can make this decision. Because yeah, our good tenants, we, we don't want them to leave. And there are a couple that have left because they moved or, you know, their jobs and whatever, but we always offer them an upgrade to a new unit for sure. Yeah, that's great. If you can, if you can transplant good tenants from an older unit to a newer unit, and then that just opens up their space to get remodeled. So. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Perfect. So uh, what's your plan for the property once you are finished with the renovations and you mentioned refinancing it? So kind of what's the long-term plan for the property? So long-term plan is to refi pulling out um, you know, a good chunk of equity, maybe leaving it at um, 30, 35% LTV. Um, and then again, being conservative, you know, 30, 35%. And then reusing that money to, to buy a different property. You know, We would sell that property probably when our accelerated depreciation is done unless it's cash flowing significantly. So we will see, you know, when, when you get into these bigger properties, you have a cost segregation analysis. So we're gonna do a cost seg and whenever that's done, then we'll probably put up for sale unless it's cash flowing very, very well. You know, and I think it's gonna be, I think, that that area is going to become very valuable in the future. Um, so we are actually looking at different properties in that area. I think, you know, four, five, six years, the property values should increase significantly. So we may just keep it. Mm-hmm. For us, it's a legacy play for Mark and I, right? It's a long-term play. It's, you know, what do you want to do with your money? Do I want to own a hundred billion in real estate? No, like I want to go golfing and with my kids, right? So. Mm-hmm. How much do you need to do that? And so we figured, Mark and I figured that out. And, and so for us, it's a legacy play. That's for investors, right? So this is just Mark and mine. So it's 50-50. Um, and then for the next ones that are bigger properties, we're going to pool in investors and, and go after bigger deals. Okay. Very good. And um, 
I think that's a good transition into my next question, which is kind of preparing a property to be sold. So and I think earlier you mentioned about selling properties in Mexico, if I heard you correctly. So can you talk a little bit about why an owner should sell their property and what they can do to prepare the property so that it really presents itself well to potential buyers on the market? Yeah, absolutely. So this is about commercial, right? So let's talk about commercial properties. And we are actually in the process of doing this in Mexico. We're selling everything in Mexico and a lot of it's commercial. One of them and a couple of them are, uh, you know, hotels, multifamily. Um, and sometimes when we've bought properties, sometimes the sellers just check out and we don't do that because when you want to maximize the value of your property, you have to be, I mean, at your best and not at your best when you want to sell at your best for months before, right? So when you want to sell your property, your commercial property is going to get valued based on your NOI and probably your prior, you know, your trailing 12, some, some, uh, some mortgage, uh, uh, some mortgages uh, will do trailing three, trailing four, but generally a buyer will underwrite for trailing 12. So in those trailing 12, before you put it out for sale, you need to maximize your income and minimize your expenses while not deferring any maintenance. So you have to be, make sure that, yeah, right, because yeah, okay. I mean, I minimize my, my expenses, but then I have all this deferred maintenance. That's not going to work. I mean, in, in, a good buyer in due diligence will find that and, and will renegotiate the price. So you need to make sure that you operate very, very lean, um, that before those trailing 12, you did everything you could in maintenance that um, is going to last for for you know the next trailing 12 that's not deferred maintenance but just take really good care of that property for for six months really really good care you know polish the floors whatever paint it so that in those next trailing 12 a lot of these little issues won't show up right and they should because well taken it doesn't mean that you're deferring maintenance it means you're actually being preemptive and you are uh, um maintain the property very very well but you want to you want to minimize or maximize your NOI in those trailing 12 months that means you know in in the setting where we have a hotel that means that the team has to be at their best everything has to be you know polished we have to be selling the best that we can our expenses need to be need to be reanalyzed because sometimes there's a lot of little expenses that maybe shouldn't be there so just reanalyze expenses get a get a good plan to be to have a lean operation and then you do a, uh, an appraisal yeah there's a lot that goes into it and you know unfortunately some owners kind of just wake up and decide to sell it someday um yeah and the property is really not going to show that well both physically and on paper which both are important absolutely and also you need to make sure that you can walk away from the negotiating table, right? Because if you can't, then you're gonna be in a position where uh, you're forced to sell or, or you don't have the leverage 
to renegotiate price or terms, not always price, but terms, timing. And if, if you do it correctly and you don't check out and you really, really uh, polish a property and he's trailing six during 12 months, then you can just walk away because there's going to be somebody else knocking at your door. Whereas if you don't, then you, know, you might be uh, left with a deal that you're not comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, sounds good. Lots of good information that uh, owners need to consider. Um, we need to be wrapping up our conversation here. Okay. So um, before I ask you some closing questions, um, just want to give you an opportunity. Any last thoughts for our audience just about the systems and processes for managing our rental properties? I think, yeah. So it's really important, you know, being a, having been a manager and working with a manager, it's a big change. It's a big difference. Working with a manager has allowed me a lot more free time. It's also a little more expensive, but it's all, but it goes back to what you want to do. If you want to be very, very involved, then make sure you set up your management property in place or management uh, company uh, correctly, right? All the systems present please. If, if what your goal is, is to be more of an asset manager and then work in different properties, then make sure you understand how that property manager works, vet your property managers and make sure that you're hiring the best that you can for your property. Um, and then just let them, let them work. Man, asset manage the manager, you manage the asset, but then you just supervise. So it goes back to your goals. You know, some people want to open up this management company and then do it themselves. I've done it. Uh, it's, it's, it's rewarding. It's, it's also a lot of work. Uh, right now, my goal is to be more an investor and asset manager. And so we're working through property managers to do that instead of setting up the whole management property. And we may, right? We may, when we have, you know, $500,000, we may set up our own management company or we may just not. And that depends on, on our goal right now is to not, is to have work through property managers so that we can go golfing with the kids later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. So it goes back to your goals, yeah. Yep. Okay, well, listen, I got a couple of closing questions just so the audience can get a better idea of who you are. And so number one question here is, why do you get up in the morning? Why do I get up in the morning? For my kids, my wife, my family. I have a lot of energy. Um, so right now with, with the COVID-19, it's been amazing just being around the family so much. You know, my wife and I go running. My kiddos suddenly come bust, you know, in the office and give me a hug. Um, you know, it's, been, it's had a challenge, but it's amazing. So I wake up for my family. I wake up for my kids. And I just wake up because uh, I love life. And, and it's a lot of fun. Wonderful. Okay, question number two I have is what's a person or event in your history that was monumental in creating who you are today? My dad. My father has been, and my mom too, but as a man, you know, this father figure is very important. So my dad, my grandparents have been amazing, amazing examples of, of, of diligence, hard work and responsibility and I look up to them uh, very, very much. You know, I've had some really good business parts also, but but uh, I would have to say, uh, yeah, my dad. 
Very good. Wonderful. Well, my last question here is what's the best way for people to get into touch with you if they'd like to learn more about your company? Yeah. So you can always call me. My cell phone is, uh, can I give my cell phone out? Sure. Yeah. My cell phone is 651-333-0099. My email is israel at legionrealestate.com. We are almost uh, done with our website. Uh, so you'll be able to get in legionrealestate.com and, and you know look at Facebook and Legion RE and Instagram Legion RE. So we're setting that up here in the next couple of weeks. Um, but right now, yeah, shoot me, shoot me an email, give me a call. Wonderful. Well, uh, to our audience briefly, uh, if you got anything out of this conversation, be sure to let us know that you have listened or watched to this. You can either comment on the YouTube video or what's really helpful is if you go to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and review. That really helps us to, one, know that you're out there. And number two, help other people to discover the show and get, also get uh, value out of it. And with that, Israel, I appreciate you taking the time again to be with us. No, thank you, John. This is awesome. And thank you for inviting me. And I'm uh, looking forward to, to seeing you again, Minria and, and other local meetups. Sounds great. All right. We will see you next time. Take care. The opinions shared on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be taken as a solicitation for representation or investments in any specific offering. Please consult with your financial, legal, tax, and real estate advisor before making any investment decisions. John Stiles is a licensed Minnesota real estate agent with Bridge Realty. Thanks for tuning in to Maximizing Your Property Value, the apartment owner's guide to operating rental properties as a successful business. If you're considering scaling up, downsizing, or right-sizing your real estate investment portfolio, it's important to know how to determine your property's value in today's market. That's why I've put together a free ebook for you called How to Calculate Your Investment Property's Value. To get your copy, go to www.realestatestyles.com forward slash value. Now, if you found any value in today's show, be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, YouTube channel, and podcast through your favorite podcast player. All the links are in the show notes. And would you do me a big favor? Help me get the word out about this show by sharing with your friends on Facebook and LinkedIn. And lastly, we appreciate your five-star rating on iTunes. I really appreciate you and wish you the best in your real estate investing career. Signing off, I'm John Stiles with Bridge Realty. Make it a great day.